Hello, and welcome to Going Off Track. My guest here. Not my guest, my co-host. Are we your guest today? I don't know. Ask me a question. You guys really lucked out. This is going to be a super exciting episode. I'm going to be interviewing Stephen Smith and Brad. We have uh, well, Brad you. has some stories that he refuses yes. to tell. I'm glad to be here. Is because he's writing a book. Am I? I don't know. You said once. I should be writing a book. You should be writing a book. I have a book. <laughs> what was called... it like? <laughs> <laughs> the last decade of the East Village. <laughs> I was going to ask, what was it like... For Kevin Smith to make a video about your band's song, and then you guys decided not to be in the video. Yeah, it's just another great, <laughs> another smart move there by Mr. Punk Rock himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to. It's okay. We can make a checklist of smart punk rock moves that I made. <laughs> Who's joining us today? Today, on Going Off Track, our guest is Davey Rothbart. Um, who wrote a book called My Heart is an Idiot that I believe now is also available in paperback and audiobook and I randomly got it out from the library and I thought it was awesome and he talked about punk rock a lot in it so we got in touch. He used to do the, or still does, excuse me, a found zine where he uses all found letters and that stuff and there's a website for that as well and he tours a lot. So go to his website and check out his tour dates because he is an awesome storyteller as you will tell from this episode. Did you have that moment where, hey, I got your book from the library, which means they bought one copy and shared it with a whole bunch of other people. So one, Lars Ulrich hates libraries, but two, <laughs> isn't that weird? But- yeah, it was a little weird, but I mean, I think, like I said, Davey's pretty punk, so I think yeah. he didn't really care. And also, uh, you know, if I hadn't gotten off the library, I would have never had him on the podcast. I wouldn't have known about it. So I feel like it kind of worked out. I'm very pro-library. Yeah, I wonder, me too. I think you would be, I mean... As a writer, wouldn't you be pro-library? I mean, it's kind of like, I don't know. I've never... Because now you have movies in libraries and they've had yeah, well, CDs and records forever, you know, in libraries. That's my mom. She goes and gets movies from the library. Yeah, they're free. Why not? Yeah. I just, I stick to books mostly. I get a lot of books though. And you can order. Now it's so easy. You order it online from home. They call you, they email you when it's there. You really? Renew it, you renew it online. You you Jeez. check out your, you, you have a card, you check out yourself at like the this grocery store like, self-checkout thing. Isn't there a way for Amazon to squash this? I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure they're trying. That they could certainly lobby to destroy the library system. Yeah, I don't know. I'm sure they're working on it. I think the fact that there's one of Congress, they can't do much about it since. I think you're underestimating Jeff Bezos. Oh, that's right. Yes. <laughs> that's bought, how you say that. Bought, I never said that guy's name out loud. <laughs> isn't, isn't it Bezos? Isn't, isn't, <laughs> Don't it, say it three isn't times. Isn't it Jeff Kisses? Isn't, isn't that what it is? He bought the Washington Post because, sure. That's as, or, The Washington Post, or as my dad calls it, that leftist oh, <laughs> rag. <laughs> Ah, kills me. Davey Rothbart, I wish I had been here. So today on Going Off Track, we're done with Davey Rothbart from Found Magazine and the book My Heart is an Idiot that I got out from the library. I didn't really know any. I'd heard of Found, but um, I just randomly picked it up and was so into it and then emailed you. And finally, you're out here doing a tour. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I'm glad you discovered the book, and uh, and it's been really fun being on the road. the The paperback just came out last week. Oh, awesome! And so um, it's kind of like a, a, another tour to celebrate the book. But what's what's cool is now traveling around. There's people who you know. Last year when the hardcover came out, 
Um, it, it had just come out, so most people hadn't read the book. And now I'm meeting people who have read it, and they always kind of give me this funny smile, and they're like, uh, I read your book, and uh, I feel like I know a lot about you. And I was like, you, you kind of do, you know? But then they feel really comfortable sharing their most like personal stories with me because I, I, I kind of like it. We just skip the small talk and just like dig in. Yeah. Oh, is that Have you always kind of been that way, sort of open to kind of sharing that kind of personal? Because you can also make yourself really vulnerable in that way as well. Yeah. Well, I, a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think that I've, yeah, I've always been pretty willing to share my personal stories with people. I mean, you know, there's some way to do it where it's not just like this like gushing confessional thing, you know, TMI type of thing, you right. know, but where like, you know, you're sharing stories that other people are relating to. And, um, and I think I was like collecting stories. I mean, more often it's been the opposite, you know, me interviewing people about their most personal situations, you know, whether it's, you know, work occasionally for this American life and I've had the opportunity to like travel around the country and the world, like talking to people sometimes when they're going through some really difficult times. And so I don't know, I'm just like always curious about other people's situations, but I think I, I have learned that when you do open yourself up, it makes other people feel more comfortable sharing themselves with you. So not that it's like a tactic or something, but it's just, I don't know. Somehow I just ended up where I'll, yeah, I'll talk about anything with anybody and I don't know. There's no rules about what's appropriate, I think. Is it weird, though, when people you don't know are, like, bringing stuff up, like, really, or is that... About my life. Well, about it, your it, life, It is yeah. funny that people I've never... Like, remember that time you cheated on your girlfriend? Yeah, yeah. it is funny when people just, like, the first minute I meet them and they just say something and I'm like, oh, that's in the book? I forgot about that. <laughs> like, I worked on the book for, like, five years, and so... It was just on my laptop and like nobody was reading it except like that Sean McDonald is the editor I work with. And I literally forgot that other people would ever read the book. So like just in the last few months now, yeah, meeting total strangers and they like know some some crazy shit about me is like really funny. But um but it's it's cool. I mean, it's fun to have people come up to me and they'll like they really are like eager to share some stuff that they've been going through and and it's fascinating and I don't even have to like twist their arm to like get them to share personal stuff with me. They, they eagerly do because they have, we have a connection, you know, they do know me because the essays, you know, are they're real and they're, I think communicate something to myself and, and, um, and so, uh, I don't know. I, I, every, every day on this tour has been fun, but really just, I don't know, you know, a friend of mine that I had a, a long time ago, he, you know, when you're drunk and you can just sort of talk to anybody and about anything and you just totally. don't think about it. He said he tries to like live every day like he's drunk, like just like, just like just standing on the, at the bus stop or whatever, just walking on the street or, you know, at the, you know, you're just more like gregarious and social and, and like cool things happen when you just start engaging with everybody around you. Yeah, that's true. But I feel like, especially now with sort of like everyone on their phones and kind of like with their head down, like it seems like that's becoming less and less common, I guess. Yeah, you might seem more and more like a weirdo when you start talking to, <laughs> yeah. talking to people. Yeah, like um, I but, said hi to a girl at a bar last night who I thought was with my group of friends. And I was like, hey, what's up? And she was so weirded out. And I was like, oh, she's not with this group. But I'm just saying hi. Like I'm not like... See, that's what's... That's what's and it's not just, you know, it's not just in that situation with, I mean, but also yeah, in general... I think, you know what, here's the thing, for every girl like her, though, who was weird like that, 
there's like, you know, there's three in 10 who would have been like, oh, hey, what's your name? You know? Right. And, totally. And so it's worth it for to have those people think you're weird. And what's the, what's the, what's the risk reward there? The, the risk is that some random girl that you'll never see again will think you're weird. Yeah. The possible reward is that she might be like, hey, hey, what's up? And like, what, what are you doing? She's sitting alone or hanging out. I mean, not that it has to lead to a date or something, but, totally. but just, just, it just could be a new person in your life that you get to be friends with. Yeah. Like, um, and our lives are made richer the more people we have in our lives, I think. The more people that, you know, that we experience and even, even if it's fleetingly, even if it's just someone that's sitting next to you on the bus or train that you kind of have a little moment chatting with or whatever, or, or, you know, there's sometimes there are people that you see briefly, but then you trade info and next time you're in Baltimore or Albuquerque, you like hit them up and see them again, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, was that sort of the part of the impetus for starting found? I mean, in a way, like kind of sharing these things that otherwise would just kind of never, people would never share with the world, I guess. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So found magazine, it started about 10 years ago. I was living in Chicago and uh, I just came out to my car one night and there was this note on my windshield. Uh, My name is Davey, but it was addressed to Mario. So I'm like, (laughs) all right, what's this thing? I look at it and and it said, Mario, I fucking hate you. You said you had to work. Why is your car here at her place? You're a fucking liar. I hate you. I fucking hate you. Signed Amber. P.S. Page me later. And so she's so angry and upset with him, but hopeful and in love. And like, and of course it's not Mario's car. It's my car. And uh, I just started, you know, I thought it was kind of amazing. All these complicated emotions. And um, I started showing it to my friends and, I was amazed how many of them had a great find to show me in return. You know, like a kid's drawing or a Polaroid in the gutter or a to-do list, some journal entry they'd found. And, you know, usually they'd have it like taped to their fridge. And it seemed like a shame that only the people that were, you know, in their kitchen would get to see that stuff. So I thought a magazine would just be an easy way to, um, to you know, share what everybody was finding with everybody else. But, you know, I had no grand ambitions. It was just like a zine, basically. Um, I was thinking I spent a few months collecting stuff. Um, and, and, you know, just sort of captivated as, as people started giving me more and more of this stuff, I was captivated by the, you know, these little mysteries, you know, it, it is like a glimpse into a stranger's life. You know, it's like, we're curious about the people we share the world with, you know, and these notes and letters are really revealing. Some of them are very raw, intimate because people are writing just to one other person, you know, they're, they're unselfconscious. They don't, they don't expect anyone else would ever read this stuff. So, right. um, and, uh. Anyway, me, me and my cousins, they're like 14 and 18. We like put the first issue together in like three nights with all the stuff we collected and took it to Kinko's to make like 50 copies. And this punk rock kid behind the counter, he was like, dude, this is awesome. Let's make 800. And um, we, uh, um, you know, we collated and stapled them and had individual six screen covers for each one and, uh, and had a party and like 100 people came and they each bought a copy for five bucks. But that left me with 700, like filling my apartment. And I, I shared an apartment at the time with uh, Tim McElrath. He's the singer of Rise Against. I know uh, Tim well. Oh, you do? Yes. That's awesome. I know Joe, Tim, yeah. all those dudes. Yeah. So, so um, Tim was pretty mad at me because the apartment was filled with boxes and I was leaving on a trip for a few weeks. And, uh, and when I got back, all the boxes were gone. And I figured they either like threw them out or like put them in the basement storage area. But he used to flood down there all the time. Tim was like, no, he said, so many people were coming by like to pick up like one or three or five copies of the magazine. Um, 
the neighbors called the police. They thought that he was selling drugs out of the apartment. No way. Yeah, people were like ringing all the doorbells like three in the morning, drunk from the bar. Well, let's, let me get those found magazines. And I was I was shocked, but I was excited that like so many other people, you know, shared my fascination with with you know with these scraps of paper because th- they were like you said they really do give you a little glimpse into someone else's life. So I think um, what's and a lot of you know a lot of the people in the punk scene have helped get found magazine out into the world, you know, rise against alkaline trio. They would have it at their merch tables. They would have these early issues of the magazine. And, um, and what's so, so where I think the book is like another step beyond, whereas like, I love these found, um, these found notes that people have been sending and they, we continue to get like 10 a day mailed in from all around the country. And it's just amazing to read this stuff. It's heartbreaking. I mean, it's some of it's really funny, but, um, but these are people that you'll never meet. They're just, you know, these anonymous people whose, you know, scraps of paper have been found blown down the street. But then, you know, the next step is like engaging with actual people and finding out their stories and, you know, people that you can really bring into your life in a, in a different kind of way. So that's what My Heart is an Idiot is about, I, I think, is it's about love and relationships, some and my own misadventures in that arena. But it's also about, you know, just the people that, you know, if you see some, 70 year old guy hitchhiking when you're on the way to the Grand Canyon and you stop to pick him up and find out his story. Well, it turns out to be an amazing story. You know, he's a guy whose lifelong dream was to go to the Grand Canyon. And I was lucky enough to pick him up and be there to witness his like, his like lifelong dream being accomplished, you know, reaching the Canyon, putting his fists in the air. And, um, you know, sometimes I got picked up hitchhiking, not that I hitchhike often really, but just, I ran out of gas or something and have had, you know, strange experiences, cool experiences really with people that, Help me out. So those are some of the stories I wanted to capture in the book. What was sort of the process like for, you said it took you five years. I mean, I just have so much respect for anyone that can sit down and actually do that. I mean, how did you focus on it as opposed to like, I'm going to go get drunk now or go watch TV or like, cause I know it's <laughs> like, it's not always a fun process. Yeah, no, you're totally right. I mean, well, there was plenty of, of the getting drunk and <laughs> watching movies, uh, interspersed between writing, you know, it's 16 essays. I think I'd written two or three before. And then uh, <clears throat> I, yeah, I mean, I would, I would basically binge write one over the course of like a couple of weeks and like barely leave my bedroom and just, uh, I didn't even have a desk or my room was like slow. Now I'm living in LA the last couple of years, but I was living in Michigan, my hometown, Ann Arbor, in this little attic bedroom. And I didn't even have a desk. I just sit in my bed and like just try to crush out one. And some of the stories are, some of them are short, like three pages, but some are like 40 pages, you know, but I would just try to write it over the course of a week or two and then I'd go get drunk <laughs> for, for a few weeks. And then, uh, and then, uh, you know, so then it would be kind of time. I kind of worked out a, a series of deadlines with my editor and having a deadline helps you, you know? Yeah. And so I just knew it was time to get another one in. So I'd have like two months before between each essay being due, but I would, you know, when there was like two weeks left, I'd be like, oh man, I got to do this and just try to not do anything else and 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 work hard um i don't know i i uh, it's yeah it's it just happened over time over you know time over years and just keep on it was it's really the biggest project biggest undertaking i've ever had you know ever done but uh but it, it was fun it was fun you know the the hope is that you know writing itself can be so hard but once you kind of hit that groove, which is not easy, it doesn't happen often and it's not that easy, but every once in a while you get into that zone where it's just like enjoyable and you're, 
I mean, I was, you know, these are real, these are essays about ex- real experiences I've had. And it was fun to like think back about them and re-examine them. And, and actually, you know, you know, if you're making yourself laugh, then you know, you're like in a good place in your writing, you know? And there's some little moments where I was just like, oh man, <laughs> remembering little details of, of these experiences. Definitely. But your experiences are so, like, I feel like are so incredibly unique. Like I've never stumbled upon a dead body. Yeah. Like all this stuff that you've experienced in those characters, it's, it's so, um, yeah. I mean, have you always kind of had that kind of, I guess, like thirst for sort of adventure and sort of traveling and, and finding that stuff? Yeah. Like, um, you know, when I was really in high school and college, um, I think I started in high school, we, you know, growing up in, in Michigan, um, I had some family in New York city and, uh, and friends and I, we would, we would do like a weekend trip. It's like an, it's only like an eight hour drive from Ann Arbor to New York city. So we would, we would come to New York and just poke about and, you know, but really it was like later I was in college and, uh, we started taking these trips down South, like spring break trips, but they weren't, they weren't like to some like spring break destination. We would just pick some, we're, we're really into like uh high school and college basketball. So we would just, try to find these obscure towns in like Mississippi and Alabama and just like go to these, you know, go into a high school basketball game in in Texas or Mississippi, you know, it's like a great way to experience like a place, you know? And so, uh, we would just kind of chart out some road trip and just wander around for a week and just, I don't know, we would have these amazing experiences and like interact with, you know, some of my friends are pretty rambunctious and pretty, you know, even when they're not, like, they didn't need to be drinking to just, be you know engaging with everybody that we cross paths with and and there were such memorable characters we'd bring a little camcorder and just film film you know all these um people we'd meet and stuff like that and uh it was like so much fun so i i don't know i think that kind of got me the you know that was the first bite uh the spider bite that got me into uh into road tripping and everything and then i kind of haven't stopped <laughs> That's amazing. I mean, kind of another underlying thing in the book, maybe not even underlying, is this kind of sense of romanticism or like falling in love with someone who you just see or this infatuation, which I feel like um, is something sort of everyone can relate to. But sometimes you kind of like lose sight of that as you kind of get older and get bogged down with more like, you know what I (laughs) mean? When you grow up. (laughs) When you grow up, I guess. I guess. Uh, I mean, but it's funny, like, I'm sorry, I don't mean to go on another tangent, but I was just interviewing... uh, Jeremy from Touche Amore uh-huh. and he was talking, we were talking about how punk rock trying to change his life. And he was like, I feel like punk rock kind of stunts your growth in a way uh-huh. in the sense that like, we're both wearing stuff that we could have worn when we were 15. Yeah. And like, it's, and I think that is true in a way, but I think maybe it kind of keeps that other kind of more idealistic stuff, kind of or romanticized stuff, maybe alive in a way as well. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Well, no, there's a certain emotional stuntedness about, just still kind of, you know, as you get into your twenties and thirties and still like having this romantic pull, what's like overwhelming toward just some stranger that you're glimpsing at a bar or on a bus or on a subway train, you know, and just feeling like, Oh my God, I, that's the, if I don't talk to that girl, if I don't know her, then life is going to end, you know, like in this. And, um, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful feeling to, I don't know. It, it's like, uh, it's, it's just a wonderful feeling to, when you, when you connect with some 
girl <laughs> that's that's awesome or or whatever it is you know a guy that you have a crush on or whatever it's just like there, there's no rush that's quite like it right and so i think i mean i think i say somewhere in the book that my friends you know kind of said that i was just continually pursuing this one you know it's like it's almost like if if it even started to blossom into something then you sometimes like you know anytime it's it, a fantasy anytime it, you know, it starts to actually happen. And, you know, a real relationship is full with, it actually has some deeply nourishing qualities that are way more than just like, oh, like chatting with some girl you just met on the subway, you know. But um, but there's also challenges, you know. And so it's easier in a way to just have like a, a parade of, of like overwhelming crushes and like infatuations and like, you know, not have to actually dig into the nitty gritty of what a relationship entails. Right. So it is kind of like you're saying, you know, it is kind of like a young punk attitude or, or something or, or emo attitude to just be like um you know it's not really it's not really taking it to the next step definitely i mean what were you sort of into punk when you were in michigan or was it more when you were kind of in sh- chicago because obviously like yeah my band used to always play it like empty bottle and, yeah you know, like lawrence arms like so many yeah, amazing and, bands there and, yeah and, uh, yeah for all those guys well it was just um i, I liked i grew up in Michigan and like mostly listen to hip hop and stuff growing okay. up. And um although I liked all kinds of music, but um but yeah when I when I moved to Chicago I just happened after college, I fell in with just a ton of crazy musicians. I mean it's actually it was just just an awesome it was just like the mid to late nineties in Chicago and just so much cool music going on. So like I live with these three girls and like they also dated a lot of musicians so that okay. those guys would like live with us. <laughs> and so they became some of my good friends, Tim Nordwin from okay, go. Um, yeah. Uh, well, it was really, when I, and then I lived with Tim from rise against for a couple of years. So, you know, I got to know all the Lawrence arms and well, alkaline trio. And, uh, and, uh, I mean, there's just so many, um, Griffin Rodriguez is a great guy, a great musician who icy demons, I think is one of his newer bands, but, okay. uh, but he, uh, you know, just everybody was so vibrantly creative and it was like a great scene to be around. There was, um, 7,000 dying rats was a guy, Zach Fioka was uh, this incredible drummer who was in all these bands, me and, uh, just used to, you know, I just, just go to all their shows and I loved, I loved live music. I loved, I loved, they, they inspired me to actually tour the way that I've been touring the last 10 years because, you know, when they would, they'd, I'd see them working really hard to complete an album and then, you know, they'd uh, they'd print up copies of it, make a couple hundred peanut butter jelly sandwiches, hop in some dirty old van, and and drive around the country for a few weeks. You know, and I was like, that's awesome. I want to do that, but I don't. I can't play any instruments. Uh, so, um, I when I first did the first issue of Found Magazine, I was like, well, I want to get word out about this project. It's a community art project. It requires participation from thousands of people. I'll just set up events. You know, like readings and i'll read these found notes because when you read them out loud you know people see the magic and mystery in them and it's incredible so i I just or started organizing little tours and i'd really just go out and read the found notes um but you know the first time you go to a city there's like five people in boston or 15 in philly and then next time you come there's like 40 and then you know if you put on a good show and and people you know get a sense of the project it just keeps growing um but I don't know it's been fun to even you know over the years like bring favorite musicians of mine on the road and tour with them. My brother Peter Rothbart, he's a great like singer songwriter based in Seattle, and he writes songs based on some of the found notes, which are ridiculous and some really beautiful and haunting. Some are just hilarious, 
And so I've been tra- touring with him a lot the last 10 years and, uh, just other, other great musicians too. That's awesome. I mean, um, and it's so weird. I had a college professor named Peter Rothbart. No way. I've heard of that guy in Rochester, New York or somewhere in Ithaca. New York. Ithaca, New York. And he taught electronic music. That that's, it's hilarious. Yeah. He, uh, we know about that guy through like Google and like, uh, Peter knows it. <laughs> There's this other Peter Rothbart floating around out there. Who's also into music. Yeah. He's that's, into, so you actually know the guy. Yeah. Huh? I took a class with him <laughs> and it, like, it was intro to electroacoustic music and you just basically made, we did it on two inch tape, but you just made all this crazy noise and you turn it in and give you a grade. I was like, I don't know if this is good or yeah, bad. That sounds but, awesome. Yeah. And I remember one of my friends skipped a final and lied about it. Like said his girlfriend to go to the hospital and Peter Rothbart figured it out and like failed him. Oh my God. <laughs> that sounds just like my brother. My brother is like <laughs> such a hard ass in a way. Like yeah. he would tell <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. It's pretty crazy. That's nice. Yeah. I, I, I want Peter, my brother, Peter to send your Peter Rothbart uh, some of his music. Cause I he think should. he would vibe on it. Yeah. yeah it might be, a, it might be a little, I don't know. Tell him to send his more avant-garde stuff. Okay, yeah, yeah. Some of the stuff is kind of plaintive, <laughs> singer-songwriter, folky stuff. So, yeah, so send, it'd have to be something a little more unusual for this Peter Rothbard Definitely. to get into it. Huh? Definitely. Um, there's something else I was about to say. What were, what were you about to say? Oh, I was just curious how you ended up in LA. Oh yeah, I know what I was gonna say, but I'll come okay. back to that. Yeah, yeah um, totally. Well, yeah. So this fall, this tour. Part of the reason this tour has been so fun is I've brought on the road with me two of the two of the guys who are in the book. Um, who like like there's an essay called Canada or Bust, and it's about this um, kind of vagabond young DJ kid named Hakeem that I met in LA, and he was trying to hitchhike up to Canada, and I was going to San Francisco the next day, so I like gave him a ride, and we kind of hit it off, and he shared his story with me. Well, um, I've like stayed in touch with him over the years, and uh, so now he's touring with me this year and uh, DJing before and after the shows, and it's it's so awesome. I've actually been reading that piece. It's kind of a longer piece than I would normally read, and it doesn't have as many like punchlines. But it's been really fun reading that one, and then kind of being like, "And this is Hucky, you know." And then there's a, I think I might just mention him really briefly in the book, but there's a sword swallower uh, uh, that me and my brother spotted on the side of the road in West Virginia, just in some small town, swallowing swords, and we were like, "What the hell is that kid doing?" And we convinced him to open our show for us that night, and he was electrifying. And we kidnapped him. He was 18, so it wasn't a technical kidnapping, but we took him with us on tour starting that night, and he toured us for a couple of weeks. The next year, we went to did our Found Magazine Europe tour, and he came along, and uh, and he's on the road with us this year, too, Swallowing Swords, and just, he's dazzling. He's really funny. Brett Loudermilk is is, is the kid's name, and uh, so that's it's been fun. You know, like, I guess I'm trying to, if I'm trying to encourage people to, like, engage with people and, like, you know, just the strangers that you pass on the street or, you know, I mean, Hakeem was just, you know, he was like settling kind of hip hop CDs on the, on the sidewalk in front of a bar, you know, but just, you know, just by a little short conversation with him and realizing he was headed North and I was too, can I give him a ride? The yield has been amazing because he's now a really close friend and, and it's been like so fun being on the road with these guys. Um, to come, to come back to your question about LA, you know, I, Ann Arbor is my hometown. I grew up in like Ypsilanti, Michigan and Ann Arbor, Michigan. And, um, and it's such a great place. I, I'd moved around for a few years, Chicago, DC, New Mexico. And I was back in my hometown for like eight years. And, uh, I just wanted to live in a city again. Um, and I have a lot of good friends out in LA. Um, it wasn't so much like career reasons or anything at all. I just, I, I always liked it there and thought kind of got a bad rap, you know, um, just a lot of a lot of kind of Midwest transplants, a lot of just 
people doing cool creative stuff you know a lot of my old friends from chicago actually most of them <clears throat> excuse me uh most of them living out in la now and um and so I just thought it'd be fun to go out there for for a few years, and it's been awesome. Yeah, it's just it's beautiful. There's you know a lot of hiking and stuff. I, you know, I, there's huge parks. I, I don't have a car either. That's what people. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, uh, my, I have a giant old van, my, but it's in Michigan, and I just haven't like brought it to L.A. So we you can use that. We use that on tour, but but I've been uh, yeah, like you know, walk, bike, bus around the city, bag rides, and uh, and. It's, um, you know, so it's like the reason that people hate LA or think it should be hated are like, I think not always, don't always hold water. Um, but I really like it. What do you think? What do you, have you had I good like times it. out there? I did a semester school there yeah. and I visited a lot. Uh, I like it. I just, I, the traffic thing, I guess, like, I guess you get used to it and you kind of live near where you work. I think that's, you know, it's, it's really, that's the thing. If yeah. you have to commute two hours a day, like some people do, it would be really annoying. I'm lucky enough to like work from home and I yeah. just live in Echo Park where I can just walk to everywhere I need to go in the neighborhood. So it's more like living in Brooklyn or something, honestly, yeah. for my, my experience of it. But, but I know, and at night there's not really a problem with traffic if you want to have to go across town. But, but I, but I, I sympathize with people who's, you know, if their school and work and other, you know, home are like all far apart, it could be a real pain. Yeah. Yeah. But I think you're right. I think it's one of those things where you're like, yeah, you just kind of get used to it or whatever. It's not that big of a deal. And you also get way more space and yeah. it's cheaper and the weather's amazing. And yeah. 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 I like New York too, though. So Do you hit cool. up, ever hit up uh, Skiba for rides? Um, I haven't recently, <laughs> but I did, I did run into him a few weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, um, yeah, he's it's, he's doing good. It's 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 actually fun to see. I constantly uh, bump into the old Chicago folks. So many of them are are out in LA now. You know the guys who, you know, I hung out with fifteen years ago. You know, and uh, it's 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 kind of cool. Yeah, that's so wild. Um, yeah, I'm actually from Cleveland originally. Okay, yeah, so from the Midwest, and I did a zine. This is zine Love Inertia, uh-huh. um, probably around probably about 10 years ago yeah and i really miss the internet everything's great but i really miss kind of that zine culture and totally. distros and i mean do you get nostalgic for that kind of yeah ever yeah too? of course yeah i mean the zine community is is great and it's still it's still going you yeah. know um it's not as vibrant as it was in the 90s or 80s or 90s and um but uh you know like i just love print you know, and so that's why Found Magazine is still once a year print magazine. We 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 have a website where, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, every day we we do a uh, a new find of the day, our favorite that we received the day before. So we definitely you know embrace the internet and the wide reach that it has. But but I just personally love you know I pride myself on the on the actual physical magazine. Actually, it's funny. There's so many people who know about foundmagazine.com. dot com. They visit the site every day. And they've never held an actual found magazine in their hands. And they, they didn't even really know it's a print magazine. And vice versa, I hear about a lot of people who, you know, like have always read the magazine, but never really have gone online or checked out the website or knew that that was a thing. So, um, but, but I, I just, I personally love reading physical things and I don't know, I still, I still, um, I pick up zine, you know, there's still some good shops around the country, Quimby's in Chicago, of right. course, Atomic Books in Baltimore, Skylight Books in, in Los Angeles, um, a bunch of places in San Francisco and, and East Bay and Seattle. You know, there's still places where you can find great zines and there's still people producing them. 
Yeah, I ran into uh, Alberian last year. Well, one of my heroes. <laughs> and he was just hanging out at like Mercury Lounge. And my band played uh, played some shows with Mile Marker. Awesome. Um, like a long time ago. And I love Challenger. I mean, I love yeah, everything. My favorite band is Challenger. Dude, that yeah. Challenger record. Um, uh, uh, give the people what they want in lethal doses. Yeah, dude, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah it's, I, I, I listen to that still constantly. I saw them uh, on their first tour when they hit Jessica Hopper was playing bass. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they yeah. Say they were on tour with like Strike Anywhere or yeah. something. And yeah, man, they were, yeah, so great. I, lo- I love that. I love that album. Um, and uh, yeah, Al was like definitely one of my heroes. Um, you know, I just moved to Chicago and. You know, he was a few years older and just, he was, you know, I went to a reading he did at Quimby's. I mean, I, I, I model my readings after the, what he did that, like that night in Quimby's. I mean, uh, you know, he just, he read his, he read some of his personal essays from Burn Collector, but he just, he, I remember he like stood up on two chairs. It was a simple thing, but it was just like, you know, it was like packed. The place was kind of packed and he just, uh, you know, he wanted people to be able to hear him and and see it, you know, it's just like you go to a lot of readings, get a bad name because they're usually boring and the people reading are not great performers. And that's, that's fine. I mean, people, you know, there's great writers. You know, they don't have to go hand in hand. You don't have to be a great writer and a great performer. Alberian happens to be both, you know, but, yeah. but I, I took cues both about his personal writing, you know, um, and burn collector, you know, I, I, I love the way he shared stories about his own life and, and Aaron Comet bus too, you know, and, you know, and, and kind of, made these kind of bigger, you know, you've kind of discovered bigger ideas about the way the world works, you know, through his own personal experiences. I mean, it's really the, it's what this American life is about, you know, the same thing, just taking, you know, uh, an anecdote and then finding the moral of the story, I guess, you know, in a way that's not cheesy and obvious, but, but uh, anyway, I just love Al's writing. Um, and, and, and then, and then through actually discovered his, the music later. Um, oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Cause I was reading all the stuff and, and, uh, and then I heard cha- that Challenger album and I, and I didn't know as much about mile markers. I should have, I think that band was more well known. Yeah, they were, they, yeah, they came first and then they were kind of, yeah, winded down. Yeah. Started with Chal- yeah, Challenger. Um, and, uh, but, uh, anyway, yeah, anyway, Alberian, Jim Carroll is another hero of mine because, yeah. uh, another writer, musician, guy uh i used to i saw him read in dc in like 98 and i saw him in ann arbor like maybe a year after and uh and just he was such an amazing i mean besides being an incredible writer he's such an amazing reader of his work so that to me i've tried i've tried to i pride myself on, on being a good reader of my writing and, and that's and making these live events really really you know gripping and yeah and so you know, I, I, I was inspired by, by those guys. Um, Jim Carroll's book, Forced Entries. You know, everyone knows Basketball Diaries. Great book. Um, forced, and that was the first one I read, you know, but Forced Entries is, is awesome. If people like Jim I've Carroll. I've never heard that. Yeah, it's it's, that. it's his essays about New York City life uh, when, when he's in his 20s and 30s. You oh, know? wow. That sounds and, amazing. And it, yeah, it's like a little older. The, the narratives are a little more structured and they're just hilarious. And he's just, and you can almost hear, if you know how his voice sounds, um, if you don't, you know, find it online, find, listen to Jim Carroll. All he, I know is stuff. from uh, Knock on the Wolves, that sample. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, you know, um, there's a, there's a live album. There's a Jim Carroll, I think it's called Praying Mantis or something like that. Okay. There's a live Jim Carroll album that I'm sure must be online and you can hear him reading all of, some of the pieces from Forced Entries and just other live readings, some poems. It's an, it's a great live album of his voice. And of course his band was, was great too. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and anyway, so just, I used to, I remember 
I mean, I, I was probably 22 or something, and I remember just seeing Jim Carroll read and be and being like at the Black Cat in DC, and I was like, I wanna, I wanna do that. I wanna, I wanna do that. And it was such a rush, like years later, to be at the Black Cat in the same room where I saw Jim Carroll read and you know do my own version of it. Yeah, that's amazing, man. Yeah, I uh, had a copy of the Burn Collector book. I lent to this girl in college, and she gave it to some other dude after we broke up. And then when I saw Al, I was like, told him that story. He's like, I have some. And he had a backpack, and he's like, and I have a new issue, dude. And he was like, 10 bucks or whatever. I was like, yeah. are you serious? Like, yeah, that's, that's the man, dude. That right there so is so incredible. Uh, I, was, I was literally thinking about him last night, and, uh, and just, I, I was having a conversation about like DIY heroes, and uh, I, I was Al Burian's, you know, one of those top three, top five, like just d- awesome DIY artists. He's a great writer. Yes, he is a great writer. But sort of the common thread, I guess, between you guys or like Aaron Comic Bus is like, this idea maybe of like writing things down kind of brings out these thoughts that you almost don't even, aren't even conscious of. Yeah. Does that happen to you a lot? Totally. Yeah. I really got insight into some of these fucked up experiences (laughs) as I was writing them down. Yeah. Like, um, you know, you, you, you're kind of studying them. I mean, it just takes a while. I'm really slow writer. So each paragraph I'm like kind of slowly cobbling together and reshaping it and then moving on to the next but then you're just really you're so deep in that moment and you're and you're just yeah these these bigger thoughts come to you about what that experience means that that you wouldn't have otherwise unless you took the time to write it down do you feel like as a writer especially this type of writer when stuff is happening to you are you thinking like remember this like or taking stock of details to write about later i I think not really yeah because that can also i guess bring you out of the moment maybe yeah maybe that would be too much like people that are like always filming everything like like a tourist filming everything yeah and then not really like experiencing being there or anyone at any concert now yeah 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 exactly (laughs) what the what's up with that no no i i uh I, Brett Loudermilk, our source follower, was making fun of uh, at one of our shows recently. I mean, it was he was in a playful way. He was poking fun of that mindset because somebody, you know, he started doing this thing. Everybody started filming, and he he was like, he was like, I promise you, it looks better th- with your normalized than through your iPhone, you know. But um, no, I I uh, and not that I haven't done that, you know, myself too. But but um, no. So when I'm when I'm living experience, when I'm just like every day, I just try to like be there and like live the experience and you know the more you just are like deep in the moment the more you you know later you can remember the details you need to and you know whatever you don't remember the the, the shady edges you know you can fill those in however you want that's that's allowed and right um as you know if the essential stories are true and and uh um so yeah so I, i don't feel like a reporter necessarily as much as just you know you remember what you need to one thing that was cool is i i talked to a lot of the the well a lot of the stories about girls and you know women in my past i i talked to a lot of them not so much to ask for their uh, blessing because i would have probably written the piece anyway or not not to ask for their permission i mean but to ask for their blessing to just you know and also to recover details that i might not have remembered so i would ask people you know well what do you remember about this trip like girl there's a story called shade about this girl I met over the phone uh, in Tucson, and we took a trip together, uh, a road, a sort of doomed road road trip. And uh, but you know, I talked to her and and asked her what she remembered of that of that trip. And you know, other in all these pieces, you know, other people that were there remembered stuff that I've totally forgotten. That were like critical elements of these experiences. So you know, it was nice to have 
other perspectives too. Did you did you talk to that? What was the one? The guy who was posing as a woman. Well, yeah, we're Facebook friends. We, really, we we, we 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 post on each other's pages all the time. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, there's a story about phone sex, and uh, and uh, this weird yeah woman had called me in the middle of the night, and uh, and we started this like long fo- phone sex relationship. Well, yeah, she turned out to not be exactly who I, who I'd imagined, <laughs> but but um, we we remained friends. Yeah, that's great. Then there was a movie that came out. It's actually. This guy Kyle Alvarez, this director from Miami, um, living in in L A now. Uh, he just uh, the first ever David Sedaris film just came out. It's called COG, and it's the first ever adaptation of a Sedaris story. And it's directed by Kyle Alvarez. Well, his his previous movie was this one. He made a movie based on that phone sex story. It's called Easier with Practice, and it's it's really funny. Um, Brian Garrity, um, who's uh, who's in the Hurt Locker and he plays like the co-pilot and f- that fl- Denzel Washington movie flight. Um, anyway, so he plays me and then, uh, Eugene bird from eight mile. who's like Eminem's kind of like rival in eight mile. He plays the woman, Nicole, that I was no having phone way. sex with. It's hilarious. it's hilarious. Oh man. So it was really trippy to be like on the set. They filmed it in Albuquerque a few years ago. And I was like there on the set, just like, they're like watching them replay these moments from my life, which was kind of insane. That must have been so surreal to watch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was fun. And then and I was so I'd be talking to the real Nicole on the phone and kind of like explaining, like taking pictures and like sending them to her slash him. And uh it was uh yeah, it is it's it was funny. It's 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 a it's a nice film. Um but uh yeah, yeah, every, pretty much everyone from all, every one of these essays is someone that's, you know, still in my life and a part of my life and I'm friends with. And I've seen, there's a, there's an essay called human snowball. Do you remember this one? I, I take a Greyhound bus on Valentine's day to Buffalo to surprise this girl. I just started dating yes. this girl named Lauren Hill. She's a bartender. Yeah. She's a yes. bartender, Lauren Hill, not the Lauren Hill, <laughs> uh, a friend of mine from high school, you know, this girl, Lauren Hill. So she lives in Denver now. So I saw her two weeks ago, we hung out. Um, and it's just, it's fun that, you know, for me, they're like celebrities because I've spent so much time thinking about them, writing about them, right? And now even reading these sto- these stories out loud at, at some of these events. So to then like see the actual people is is really fun. What what's sort of the reaction like? Is it kind of flattered or weirded out or like Mo- pretty positive? Mo- it's mostly pretty positive because I think the depictions of most of them are pretty affectionate. You know, yeah. I think if anyone is revealed to be insane or weird, a total weirdo, it's me. You know, <laughs> and so. Um, so mo- mostly it's been like super positive. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, just people, you know, they, they feel honored that I, you know, kind of chronicle these moments and put them, but, but there's, it's funny. There's one piece called Southwest. It's about this girl I met on an airplane like seven years ago named Kara. And, uh, I, I was, it was one of these things like we talked about earlier where it's just like, you see some girl and you're just like, that's her. That's like the perfect girl for me. I, this girl looks seem a little different. Usually I'm into like artsy girls that are like, or punk rock girls or whatever. And this girl was like, um, just a little more like kind of like dressed up and nice, you know, but I just still had this something about her vibe. I just had a sense that this could be a really cool girl. She was sitting next to me on the, on the airplane. So I started talking to her and then she <laughs> revealed to me that she hates reading she hates books <laughs> and she hates reading. And so I just, all of my dreams kind of like fell to pieces. And and so that's the girl that I, I have not seen again since then and yeah, don't really yeah. expect to because I'm sure she's allergic to books and probably would never go to a reading in the first place. So I'm unlikely to run run back into her. 
That's amazing. Yeah, I had a moment like that, not in, really in a romantic way, but I took a trip to Asia for three weeks mm-hmm. in January, and I was flying to Seoul, South Korea. And I was yeah. going by myself. I didn't know anyone there, really. Yeah. And I talked to a girl next to me in the plane, and she lived like a block away from my hostel, like showed me how to get there, took me out to bar, took me to all this stuff cool. like I never would have gotten to do. And it is so interesting how just talking to someone or just being friendly can kind of shape your whole experience. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's always, the, it always leads to good things, you know, or, and, and at worst somebody thinks you're weird and whatever you move on. Absolutely. You know, I learned a lot from my dad who, for two reasons, he's a really gregarious guy. So he'll talk to anybody and, you know, have long conversations at diner with the waiter or waitress and, and so, you know, just watching the way he operates in the world is, is cool. Um, but also, um, he, he is like side income as I, when I was a kid would come from scalping tickets to like university, of Michigan, football, basketball games. And I'd go with him to the games and I'd kind of be his little helper, you know, from like age seven, 10 years old. Like, but I, what I learned and later I did Chicago when I was first moved to Chicago to like be a writer and my, my day job was like ticket scalping there too. That's why I really actually got super deep into it. But I learned that like rejection, there's like, there's no, I learned to just take rejection and have it wash off your shoulders with nothing. You know, when you're scalping tickets on the street, you're, you're trying to engage with dozens, hundreds of people who needs two tickets, you know, who's got one, who needs two. And some people look at you weird. They think you're rude or something, but you just don't have time to even, you know, they, they're like darts that just bounce off you after a while. And so I think that's kind of how I try to continue to live my life. Even if I'm not scalping tickets, I'm just, you know, just talking to people. And, um, you know, sometimes something really cool comes out of it like it did for you in South Korea. Definitely. Um, I have a ticket scalping question. Yeah. I feel like I'm sometimes I'll try to buy tickets and it's like five minutes before the show starts right. and I'll be trying to negotiate and it's still way too much money. And I'm just like, this is going to be like a worthless piece of paper in right. like a half an hour. Like what's the, what's like the technique or like, what are you, do you just, how, how can you get a really cheap ticket? How can you get a cheap ticket or like, what's, what's the scalper, I guess, thinking, I guess, like what's at, their at approach? That point, well, Cause they never seem like really desperate. Like I need to get rid of this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, half an hour before the show is, that's still a lot of time. I mean, okay. I would say, you know, like, you know, half, I mean, think about it. There's probably an opening band, you know, right. That's so true. There, there, there may be two hours that they still have to where people are going to keep walking up and, and buying it. I mean, sports events are a little bit different, you know, by like, you know, once it's like the, say a bulls game, you know, once you're the first quarter's over, you know, people are not really showing up and right. Yeah, but I mean, if you, so yeah, I mean, I think they they probably in that instance they probably figured that they still have time to sell it, and so they don't need to move the price down. I mean, you're probably the best thing you're served doing is kind of almost taking a scalper's approach, and you know, look, is engaging with is is buying it direct from another ticket go, uh, contract goer, right? So, right. So what it takes is for you to kind of do what a scalper would do and you have to just stand around and be like as people are streaming up hey does anybody have one extra ticket hey do you guys have one extra ticket hey i really want do you guys have happen to have an extra ticket you know then then instead of you know buying at high retail scalper right, price right. you can buy for you know maybe they'll sell it to you for what they bought it for or you know like something a little more like a wholesale price and right uh i know i i i, have, I could give an hour hour long <laughs> uh, uh rant slash treatise about like how to buy and sell tickets, but, but, um, yeah, I don't know. 
buying buy from other people. Buy from other helps. people. Yeah, yeah. yeah or or wait, or just you know wait till real late in the game. You know. Yeah. But but it's weird. Markets can be really unpredictable. Sometimes, if it's a hot event, you know, like sometimes the tickets actually. Usually, the closer you get to game time or the concert start time, tickets prices will kind of go down because people need to get rid of them. Right. But sometimes the tickets just kind of dry up, and where there was forty tickets floating out in front of the concert, you know, now there's only like five and like yeah. three or none, and it can get actually tight and hard to get in. So it's a little unpredictable. Awesome. That is very insightful. Yeah. Um, I was curious too. I know I've already kind of asked about this, but having kind of started found as a zine and then yeah. doing the site now and and touring i mean i know i sort of already talked about this but this is, i'm kind of obsessed with this like yeah. how do you think technology has like affected people do you think it's bringing people more together or kind of alienating them or sort of both i guess from your experiences yeah um well first i, I gotta give a shout to james melinda he he's my friend who does found magazine with me he, d- he does the the found magazine website okay cool so every day on foundmagazine.com you know he puts up this new find of the day and you know, culling through you know thousands of finds that people have scanned and emailed in, or some if somebody sends in like an original find or a photocopy of it, then I would look at that and it could go in the magazine. Um, and James does a, a great job with the site, but but I, I do think that like, um, I mean, certainly this is a little different than what you're asking, but certainly as far as the finds themselves, as technology evolves, you know, less people are writing down these handwritten notes, right. and yet there's new ways to find stuff like. People print out an email and lose that. That's blown down the street. Someone sends an email to the wrong email address, and that's kind of a way of finding something. Um, people have cell phones. Like my friend in Baltimore got a cell phone for her dad who's like in his 80s. As soon as they powered it on, text messages start streaming through from this like embittered ex-girlfriend of whoever had previously had that cell phone number. And and it was like this interesting. Te- she typed up like thirty texts, and no it was kind of because she didn't think the guy was writing back to him, and just getting more and more <laughs> mad. So that's like another interesting way to find stuff, you know, through new newer technology. Of course, I love the ones with handwriting, and I love that. But your, I feel like your question had more to do with like the way that we interact with each other. I or? guess so because I do feel like it's such a medium where like you can have Facebook and you can be connected to all these people, but like you're sort of not really. It's you're so yeah. tangentially connected to them. Yeah, I mean. IRL is the best in real life, you know, and hanging out with people, IRL. So, um, you know, like I I love Facebook and because uh, it allows you to remain in touch with so many friends that are scattered around the country and kind of, you know, at least stay up to date with what's going on in their lives. But but sometimes it you do you're le- you, you do kind of forget the importance of just like going out and being around people and like you know, and and that's that's irreplaceable, and it's it's dangerous kind of to rely too much on just you know technology for 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 our like social interactions. Um, and uh, I don't know, that's that's part. That's one of the great things about me. When I'm at home in LA, like I'm on my computer all day and night, and so I do just Facebook and texting a lot and stuff. But that's one of the things that's been like amazing. Like I've been on the road for like three weeks now, and like. I you know I haven't really I haven't checked Facebook once really um just but like I've met just like awesome awesome people and just had these like great nights like I would just prioritize I don't know just you know just meeting meeting strangers and like uh, I met a wide range of of interesting strangers and just 
just doing that and getting a chance to to hang with them and and uh and you know that's like that's like the most valuable thing that you could you could do creating those like i don't know whether it's someone that you stay in touch with your whole life or someone that you never see again um it's really great i, I met this this train hopper in fort collins colorado he i was there during this week of epic floods and epic storms and and he had walked from laramie wyoming in like the last like two days and and he, and he, um, he was just this I mean, he had all these facial tattoos, you know, pretty hardcore dude named Oswald. Um, and, uh, but we had, we talked for like an hour and a half and it was actually kind of moving. He showed me this, he had these two photos of his like three-year-old son, like in his wallet and his like, you know, battered wallet and these like kind of thumb dog-eared pictures. And and I felt like these are the kinds of photos, one of them, his, his three-year-old son was holding a gun because he was like teaching it how to target shoot. And uh, he was also kind of like a, he had like grown up like like with like the survivalist uncle, so he he knew all this stuff. Uh, anyways, but just looking at this picture, I was like, these are the kinds of pictures that people send into Found Magazine, and it's just like a photo, and it, it kind of has some story to it. But you don't know what it is. But I'm like talking to this guy. I'm like hearing the whole what the story is. So it's like so rich to hear this guy talk, tell these stories, and share these. So like I've met some people on the road that I like got their numbers, and we're Facebook friends now, and I'll keep talking to them. They're awesome. I'll see them next time I'm in Bellingham, Washington, or or Chicago, but, but even that guy, which I, you know, I, he didn't have a phone or anything. He's not on Facebook. So I, I don't, I don't really know how, I'll, if I, I won't, you know, unless I run into him again, I won't see him again, but, but even just talking to him was valuable. Yeah. Sorry. I feel like I'm like saying the same shit. Over no, and over. no, 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 no. Yeah. I think it's really important. I think, yeah. uh, I think that's a really, really healthy thing for, for people to hear. Cause yeah. I do feel it's easy to get caught in like yeah, kind well, of like bubble. that girl at that damn bar that that uh, thought you were so weird for just being like, "Hey, how you doing?" Like, yeah, what what is wrong with her? What is uh, who cares though? Was, uh, other keep doing that, and other people will respond more positively. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I also wanted to me- ask sort of how the NPR thing kind of came about. Sure. Um, well, I was a fan of This American Life. Uh, I was living living in New Mexico and discovered the show, and uh, um, would listen to it every week, and it turned out. A friend of mine named Mike Sue uh, that I had gone to college with, he uh, he told me that he heard that they were looking for a new producer on the show. They were hiring, basically, and uh, and he encouraged me to apply. And we we laughed about how unqualified I was, but he was like, you know what? Even if you don't have a chance, you know, I'd, I'd showed him some of my like early documentary projects, and he was like, even you know, even if they don't hire you, you'll get a chance to get to know them, and that, maybe that that could be a good thing. So I was really struggling to put, to put together my application you know i wrote a really sincere cover letter about my love of storytelling and my love of collecting stories from people but my resume was was tough i you know i i put on there eventually i just put on there like my actual jobs you know pizza delivery for seven years in 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 michigan um ticket scalper marijuana salesman and i just (laughs) you know but um and i sent it in just as a joke really and like three days later ira glass you know the host of the show He's like leaving a message on my answering machine. No we, we way. had those at the time. Yeah. And he was like, you know, he stutters and everything. Yeah. He's like, we, 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 we want to interview for the show. We want to interview for the job. And I was like, well, my roommate at the time was just like, uh, this grizzled triathlete who really didn't listen to public radio. And, um, but I called my older brother and like played the message for him. Cause I was like, Oh my God, Ira Glass just called me. And, uh, I interviewed for the job. They interviewed three people for one job. They hired both of the other two. <laughs> and and <laughs> Jonathan Goldstein and Starley Kine at the time, and then uh, I but but they said you know no, you 
you never had a job in radio. You never even had a real job before. But um, but we wanted you to start doing stories for the show. I, I had a chance to tell them about some ideas I had. So they were like, yeah, we'll give you a microphone and tape recorder. Go out and start doing this. So it was awesome. They, they're very cool about having faith in people who are inexperienced but but have good stories to tell. And so I ended up moving back to Chicago soon after and uh, and started working with the show and, and doing stuff. And it's just been fun. I've learned so much from those guys. Ira is a you know guru of storytelling. Um, Alex Bloomberg and Julie Snyder are two of the long longtime producers who I worked with probably the most closely. And you know I feel like even when my heart is an idiot, you know when the book came out, I just I thanked those guys because I felt like I learned about the craft of storytelling through working with the radio show. That's amazing. And I I'm, the book I'm assuming did well. If there's a paperback, I don't know how that stuff works. Uh, yeah, but. yeah, definitely. Yeah, um, it's like it, it wasn't like gangbusters where like you know it's like super bestseller or anything. But the response has been awesome. Yeah, I mean like you know just people said really nice things about it in in like. You know, they're just I'm, I've always read the New Yorker, so like seeing a nice review, it was like a capsule, one of those capsule reviews. But they said really nice things, and I was like, oh, "Wow, that's awesome!" You know, holy shit, you know. Um, and then even, really, it's just like the emails and Facebook messages I get, you know, one every day or every other day, just of people who have read the book and and really felt it. It's like, or even just certain friends of mine that I almost like felt like I was writing the book for them. Like I just felt like that they would, they 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 will get this. They will, they've been through this. Um, some acquaintances, people I didn't know that well, but they like they were like told me how much they liked it, and I I don't know I I felt closer to them because that they like kind of understood what I was going for. Not everybody loved the book. There's you know, obviously as an author, you read your Amazon reviews, and there's like <laughs> some I don't know. I gotta think that they're like older, more conservative people that are like easily shocked, you know. <laughs> and so you know, some of them were just like uh, couldn't get past certain. Uh, failings of mine <laughs> and and uh but uh but no the response has been great yeah so it came out in paperback last week and and um it's just fun to like uh you know just i just keep getting it out there and, and keep sharing it with people that's that's all you know any any musician any artist any writer filmmaker all you want to do is like is share your art with people you want people to read your book and listen to your album and and so for me, it's never been about trying to get rich off this shit because that's so unlikely in the first place. It's really just about like, you know, wanting to communicate yourself and have people feel, you know, feel it. So it's, it's just endlessly valuable to me when, uh, meaningful. That's why I put my, my personal email address on the, on the website. It's my heart is an idiot book.com. And on that site, we have all these videos, my dad rapping about he's 77 now, you know, rapping about his favorite essay from the book and stuff. Um, but I put my email on there because I want, you know, I want people to be able to reach out um, on Facebook or email and just let me know what they thought of the book, even even if they hated it. <laughs> That's awesome. Have you sort of thought about writing a follow up, or is it? Have you worked on that at all, or what's? Yeah, I I um I have a couple ideas, but um I, I part of me wants to want to write another similar book to My Heart Is an Idiot because I have like there's like another thirty essays or thirty stories that I could have just as easily shared, you know, that I would like to write down. Um, but I think I'd like to also try something a little bit different. So um, I'm trying to figure out what, what the next book will be. I, I've also gotten really into documentary film. I've always been a super documentary film junkie. So um, I've been working hard the last few years on this documentary called Medora. And it's it's about this like uh, tiny town in rural Indiana um, where you know things have factories shut down, things have gotten pretty dire. And this high school basketball team that, that never wins. So I spent a couple years there with my friend Andrew Cohn uh, and some other friends and just filming these kids and, and filming their stories 
and the kids were amazing. Uh, they were very generous to their families about letting us film in their homes and cover some pretty difficult, challenging situations at the, you know, home in their home lives and stuff. And, uh, yeah, the movie is, it came out good. It came out good. It's called Medora. The town is Medora, Indiana. So we premiered at South by Southwest this spring, which is awesome. Um, it's coming out in theaters in November and, um, and now I'm, and it's going to be on PBS. They have a, a great series, Independent Lens. So it's going to be on that next March. And then I'm, I'm really just, uh, I have, I have like two other documentaries in the works. Um, one is about this kid named Emmanuel Durant. That was like almost like a big brother, little brother thing uh, This uh, in DC when I lived there. And um, it's, I, I filmed him over the course of 10 years. And so it's kind of about his, his story and his family story in inner city DC. Um, so that's, that's the next one I want to tackle, but I don't know, I have like two more ideas than I have time for. So it's always a challenge to figure out which things to focus your energy on. But uh, you know, Somehow you just pick one and go for it or pick six and <laughs> go for them all and juggle it and, you know, I don't know, be crazy. Definitely. I mean, I, I guess what advice would you have maybe for someone who wants to feel more connected or because it seems like all of your experiences come out of other people or yeah. just putting yourself out there. Like a lot of people I feel like are kind of maybe inherently shy uh-huh. or not used to talking to people they don't know. I mean, what advice would you have maybe f- for them, I guess, if they're listening? Yeah. That's a really good question. Um, yeah, like, I mean, I guess it would be just to start small, like with anything, just to start with the smaller and easier things, you know? I mean, maybe either to challenge yourself, like, you know, um, to like, because I mean, I don't know. I don't think I was always like this or something. Like, I don't, I, I don't think I was ever shy, but I don't think, I don't think I was this outgoing or this like crazy. So I feel like, <laughs> I mean, maybe it's a matter of challenging yourself. Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to talk to one stranger a day, you know, and just forcing yourself to do it. Um, and, and then I think it'll just like anything that seems, that's really difficult at first, it gets a lot easier the more you do it. So, you know, even sometimes if I haven't been like scalping in a, a few years, which I really don't do much anymore, but, but sometimes I'll just go to a concert myself and I'm like, shy of doing the same things that I'm talking about and saying, Oh, they, they're so easy. Then it's not easy. It's not easy, but I'll just, so I'm like, find myself being, I'm like, well, this is weird. I'm kind of nervous about just like trying to like chase, say, Hey, who has an extra ticket? Who has an extra ticket? Then of course, once you do it, it just gets easier. And, you know, I mean, I think alcohol is a good, um, it's good to, to like, I don't think you should like feel like you need to drink to like engage with people, but I think it, it could help like, if you're just like, want to like practice, being less shy and like, you know, uh, yeah, have a drink or two and then, you know, do it. I, I don't know. It's dangerous because it can become tied together. Right. But, um, but uh, like you, you shouldn't have to rely on that to, to, to chat it up with people. But I think, I think, I think it's just a matter of doing it. The more you do it, the more you realize that, that, uh, you know, and, and also just mentally knowing that the stakes are not that high. Don't learning to have rejection, you know, you, when you do it, you, you realize how great the rewards are because good things come of it. And then you realize how minimal the rejections are. Like, who, who fucking cares? Like, and, and the, more you, the more you get rejected, the easier it becomes. <laughs> and, you know, the more people react poorly, the more you're able to just let those roll off your shoulders and then celebrate the times when you make a new friend. And that was Davey Rothbart teaching us how to be more social and converse with strangers something i'm sure we can all work on <laughs> 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 pardon me i had a text with somebody 
So I don't have to see them face to face and look them, look them in the eyes. Davey, uh, just went here and you talk about him. Does he have kind of an Aaron Comet bus kind of vibe? Just that yeah, kind of. Yeah, 100%. Yep. Yes. I like, think. Gotta get Aaron Comet. We bus could. Up. You know, I used to see him. He used to sell books on Bedford Avenue. I used mm. to see him all the time. And then I had a weird uh, combo with him at like a Mexican bodega where I asked him a bunch of stuff about <laughs> Thorns of Life after he'd left. <laughs> uh, and he was like waiting for his bagel. So like he literally couldn't leave. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, I, think I love that about- that happened. Just, you know, okay, so you have to wait right now. So I've got you. <laughs> well, it's weird. Yeah, it's weird living in, in Brooklyn because you do like see people like who aren't really celebrities, but who like you're really into. Right. So like, I had this morning on the way home from yoga. I saw that dude Shane who owns Vice. Oh yeah, but he's on Joe Rogan's podcast all the time. So I was like, oh my god, it's a guy from Rogan's podcast. Like, <laughs> uh, like and I'm like, and I was like, I should say something. No, no, like I, I didn't. Like guy from that awesome HBO show as well. Yes, awesome HBO show. Uh, I know. I want to try to get him on the podcast someday. I've been trying. I'm not giving up. I think he would be fantastic. Me too. And his episodes with Rogan are so crazy because it's all about the travel stuff. And there's a bunch of other writers I want to get on the show, and I want to use your method of emailing them and going, "Hey, you want to come on? I think Dude, it'd be cool." Totally, totally. I mean, that guy Shane owns a multi-million dollar empire, but most most people like I feel like who just have written a book or just doing their own thing. It's it's easy. They want to talk about stuff. Millionaires, they're just like you. They really are. Um, but yeah, check out Davey's book, My Heart is an Idiot. It's awesome. Check out Found and check out when he's coming to your town. I believe, yeah, he always has sword swallowers, fire breathers. He always brings interesting people with him, as we talked about in this episode. So if you can do a cool carnival-esque skill, get in touch with him <laughs> as well. If you can juggle something anywhere with your body. Yeah. I don't know what that meant. No, but I pictured something that was dirty. Fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> if you have a dirty letter or something erotic you want to send to us, go to facebook.com slash track. We will read it and we'll probably share it with a lot of people because we find that kind of thing amusing. If you like the podcast, hey, thanks for listening. If you want to go on to goingofftrack.com, our lovely website, there's a donate button which you can click and do what that button says. However much we appreciate. If not, thank you so much for listening. Follow us on Twitter at Going Off Track, which is um, the flip flop handle of mine and Jonah's Twitter handles. Oh yeah, so we can sneak in. So if you reply to us, that's us coming back at you. That really is us. Yeah, it's not. Um, it's not a, a robot. It's that- not some PR agency. In Manhattan. Not yet. Getting paid big, bu- big bucks. Yeah, big bucks. <laughs> I can't even say it. It's such a lie. <laughs> it's so unbelievable <laughs> that my brain can't process it. I think it'd be kind of funny if we hired somebody. It'd be like, this podcast, it's got, you know, it's got a nice following. It gets some fun guests and things. Oh, who are they with? CAA. <laughs> <laughs> you hear that, CAA? We'll be sending you a one sheet very soon. Yes. Next week, more of this.